When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, you guys? You guys are going to love this episode. I interview Iowa City Councilor John Thomas, landscape architect, renaissance man, and all-around good vibe guy. John is such a, has such a clear, elegant mind, and he has such an engaging personality. No better person to spend an hour engaging in discussion about the late 20th century trends in urban planning. We discuss issues large and small relating to urban planning. We discuss a recent unsuccessful proposal to convert Market and Jefferson streets on our Iowa City's north side from one-way to two-way. We get into why that's so important. I think you'll find there's really surprising issues as to why we think that that was a big mistake. We also try to give the opposing side its due in terms of why they ultimately decided not to do that. But then we also explore some larger trends in urban planning in the late 20th century America. And we discuss some of the great authors in urban planning. Jane Jacobs, Death and Life of American Cities, Chuck Marone, Robert Carroll's Power Broker, we also get into some of the leading economic theorists of urban planning, Joe Minicosi. Um, all the book recommendations that we discuss on this episode of The Rockney Cast, you can find at rockneycole.com. If you click on any of those books in the show notes, the show does get a portion of those proceeds. I hope you can support the show um, by clicking on some of those books and learning about urban planning. Uh, we had a great, engaging discussion. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I had in putting it on with Iowa City Councilor John Thomas. John Thomas, how are you? I'm doing well, Rockney. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Rockney Cast on this beautiful Wednesday morning. Sun is shining, got blue skies. It's a good day to live in Iowa, isn't it? That's right. Well, thanks so much for getting on the show. Um, Basically, we're going to talk a lot about a lot of interesting issues about your term on city council, sort of where you see things going. We're going to talk in particular about some urban planning issues. Uh, the city council had made a recent decision relating to a one-way to two-way conversion on Market and Jefferson um, here in the city of Iowa City. And, you know, one of the things you and I have talked about in the past is these are actually major issues and it doesn't seem like that big a deal. Like, why would anyone care about a one-way versus two-way? So we'll get into some of that. Um, and then we'll talk about sort of our shared love of urban planning. Um, you are an expert and I am a dilettante. Uh, I, am, I am an admirer of the urban planning legends like Jane Jacobs and Andre Duwani and Jeff Speck. And so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So first off, before we get started about all these exciting urban planning issues, if you could share with our listeners, who is John Thomas? And how did he get to the city of Iowa City and serve as the city councilor for the city of Iowa City? Well, I, you know, I spent most of my life in California before moving here about 11 years ago. And uh, my professional work in California was working as a landscape architect, primarily with the city and county of San Francisco. So I did 
23 years working for the city of San Francisco, designing parks and public spaces, streetscapes, things of that sort. And um, reached a point in my life where I felt I wanted to make a change with my partner, Sarah. And uh, Sarah is a Midwesterner from the state of Iowa, went to the University of Iowa. So we, we had come back here and visited with her friends and family. And I had attended graduate school at uh, the University of Michigan. So I had some familiarity with the Midwest. I felt it was a place where there was a strong sense of community. It was a value that I felt was uh, kind of bedrock in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And so that aspect of the Midwest really appealed to me and sort of tied in with my interest in, you know, the common welfare. You know, my work as a landscape architect was designing community spaces. So I was very interested in, in you know, the life and death of the community and what, what can we do to promote community. What made so, you so interesting to me is, is that one of the things you've really struggled in the city of Iowa City is precisely that as the community grows, how do we keep it livable? And I think that's been really one of the key challenges that the communities face. How do we keep these dynamic, unique neighborhoods and, you know, being inclusive, increasing our density, while at the same time making it a nice place to live? And so I think that's what made uh, me drawn to your work is that you have those credentials and you both have the theoretical uh, construct, but you also have the practical experience like in the city of San Francisco. Yeah. And I, you know, what's, what's been interesting and, you know, you mentioned the um, some of the traffic law related issues that um, I'm finding intersect with uh, urban planning. Uh, but what I have found and, and was reminded by with the recent vote on the one-way system was Iowa city is, is made up of, um, a fair amount of suburban development mm -hmm. around the perimeter uh, with, an, with a kind of traditional city urban core. And in a sense, they're two separate worlds. Uh, they, they really live, those who live in the suburbs live in places which are more auto oriented. Uh, those who live in the center at least have the option of walking and bicycling as a means of, of getting about town. And I think there's a certain amount of conflict there in uh, culture that I'm, I'm trying to, um, you know, I'm trying to bridge those two. I think, I think the issues of safety apply to both the outer edges and the center of town. I think they're more critical in the center of town because we have higher traffic flows. The speeds tend to be a little bit higher. Um, so there, there are a number of issues which I think, you know, are unique to the center, uh, but certainly Traffic safety is something that I think applies to the city as a whole, um, but I'm finding there's a certain amount of resistance to that, um, you know, as we begin to explore it. There is, and I think the issue with suburban development, you know, as I indicated in our opening, both you and I are really big fan of Andres Duwani, and he, you know, sometimes is viewed as a critic of suburban development, but one of the things that I've heard him say is that it's not that suburbs don't work on some level when you are there or when you are in the house and you are enjoying your, you know, four bedroom, you know, taupe interior with blonde balsam wood floors. They work in a certain way. And, and those neighborhoods, they're very, they can be very family friendly. So it's not that they don't work on some level when you get there. The issue is, what is the cost 
to the community in terms of the horizontal infrastructure? And what is the cost in terms of the, um, you know, the, the infrastructure in terms of the, your, your streets, uh, you know, you need to get one ways out there because people want to get there as quickly, the stress, the environmental cost. And I think we're exceedingly see there's also a little bit of an undertow here that, that they can be very segregated neighborhoods, uh, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. So it's not just a question of you say tomato, I say tomato. These are some major issues. Um, uh, Dewani is very pragmatic about that. He always talks about it's not a question of either or, it's a question of allocation. What kind of community are you going to have? Um, so I think that sort of sets the stage for this issue that we have uh, in the city of Iowa City, where it seems like a relatively banal issue, converting market and Jefferson from one way to two way. I mean, who the hell cares? Like, why should we even care about that? So if you could just set the stage, tee it up for our audience, what was the proposal and sort of what was the thought process behind it? Uh, and where, where does it stand at this point um, yeah, in terms of the city council? It's my understanding the city council has uh, accepted uh, the recommendation to keep it one way. So set it up for the audience. Why, why should we care whether it should convert from one way to two way? Well, I think, you know, what I, what I found was the, the, the Jefferson market one ways were, were kind of an expression of the issue of how should our streets function? Should we be putting a, a premium on speed and traffic volume mm -hmm. or should we be putting a premium on safety? And the, you know, those, those are in a sense, you know, the, the, these, these values which one can prioritize. And, you know, as we were just saying, the, the, the suburban model sort of suggests, well, let's try to expedite traffic as it moves about town and in the case of Market and Jefferson, that provided a way for people living further out to get to get into the core more quickly at a higher speed. And you know, we we developed a streetscape master plan for the downtown area. Mm -hmm. That plan, this was in around 2013. The the plan did emphasize the that the priorities for the streetscape master plan were safety and infrastructure. And with that being the case, the market Jefferson one ways were put in the top priority of as, as a project uh, to fund and, and to implement. That was supported also by the downtown district because you have, uh, you know, the market Jefferson couplet run on either side of Northside Marketplace. So it, it the, the Jefferson Street one way in a sense is a kind of a, a barrier between the downtown and Northside Marketplace. And Market Street runs right through the center of Northside Marketplace. So there, there are impacts on that, that commercial district by the one-way system. And so I also want to set the stage, those of our listeners that live in the city of Iowa City know this particular region, but for those of us, for those of you who don't know and have an interest in urban planning, our Northside neighborhood in the um, city of Iowa City is a pre-World War II neighborhood that in a lot of ways represents a, a bygone era, a lost world of pre-World War II infrastructure, a mixed-use, light um, neighborhood commercial developments. We have our North Market Square Park. Uh, we have a North Market Square commercial district, uh, essentially where it's very walkable. You can get to a hospital. There are a theater, film, pretty much everything is almost within a five-minute walk, which is essentially the gold standard for uh, new urbanism. 
I don't know when it was actually converted market and Jefferson in the seventies and sixties though, the view was you, you and I like pattern language. One of the, I read that book, uh, an urban planning book went from the seventies and they, they were talking about the virtues of the, of the, of the couplet where you'd have a one way going one direction, one way going the other direction. And as a matter of traffic, here's the deal is that one ways do work better in terms of speed and in terms of volume. Um, and so a lot of times it's not that we're criticizing our staff, you know, that the phrase, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, if you want to move traffic and you want to move it fast, you do it one ways. But if you're thinking about other things, um, there are some concerns there. So if you could just sort of highlight what you think the virtues of a one to two way uh, impact would be on the district, uh, right. what would be the benefits? So I, you know, I, when I, we had this on our uh, work session agenda, you know, last week, and I tried to identify what I thought were four reasons why this conversion was important. Uh, first of all, the, the issue of safety, you know, when you have multi-lane one ways, meaning two lanes in our case, that does tend to increase traffic speeds as drivers will tend to jockey uh, from one lane to the other, trying to find the empty, the empty lane, shall we say. So, so speeds increase. With speeds increasing, of course, issues related to, to safety, and not just the, you know, the sort of data that that might generate in terms of collisions, but just the psychological chilling effect of speeding traffic uh, where it occurs. The, a second issue that um, is typically associated with one-way systems is they degrade the adjacent properties. This isn't simply a question of traffic and, and its flow. It's also what, it, what that flow, especially when, when you see uh, speeds, uh, illegal speeds, is, is how it can affect the adjacent properties. Who, who would like, those of you who would like to live on a one-way street, please raise your hand. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, uh, I hear this all the time because they run through the, the neighborhood in which I live. Dodge and Governor, which are a north-south one-way system. Market Jefferson, which are an east west system, those who live along those streets, their lives are degraded, whether it's residential or commercial. So that, that reflects then eventually uh, on property values. You know, the taxable value of those properties is diminished because of that. Uh, another is convenience. You know, you have with the one ways and we're, you know, the conversions, we, we have been making progress on that. We, we converted back Washington Street downtown. Mm -hmm. We converted a portion of Dodge and Governor south of Burlington. So we've been eliminating kind of on a more block by block basis, uh, our one way system. But what, what the one ways generate is, a, is inconveniences in terms of getting around town. Uh, you know, often end up having to take circuitous routes in order to get to your destination. Uh, we have a fair number of visitors to Iowa City they're not expecting these one-way systems. You see, you see traffic going the wrong way pretty regularly. I talked to uh, a sales clerk at John's Grocery at the corner of Gilbert and Market recently and asked him, what, what do you see out there? And he said, oh, I see a car maybe once an hour going the wrong way. Well, which is uh, an exceedingly high number. That's yeah, which is, you know, <clears throat> so the, the term I've come to use with the one-ways is they don't self-regulate, especially in Iowa City, because they're kind of unanticipated. There's really no need 
given the, the volume of traffic we have in Iowa City to go to a one-way system. We can easily handle the traffic flows with, with two-way traffic. Uh, the, the fourth issue, which you, know, you touched on at the beginning, and I, I hadn't really had this insight until we had our Black Lives Matter uh, conversation uh, begin roughly a year or so ago. And that is that when streets do require policing for whether it's speeds, uh, traffic going the wrong way, you know, whatever the outcomes are that um, are disruptive, uh, that requires police presence. The more we can have uh, our streets self-regulate by designing them so that they function properly, that the speeds that we see are precisely what we want in terms of our our uh, speed limits, mm-hmm. that should be our goal because then the need for policing, the notion that we can simply uh, prevent traffic stops by not needing them in the first place is precisely what we're trying to do with our mental health response. You know, get the police out of our uh, engaging in, in those members of our community that may have mental health crises, get the right professional uh, to address those needs, uh, prevent the police from having that interaction. The same thing could be applied to traffic safety. Just get them out of the equation. They have better things to do than enforcing traffic laws. Absolutely. And you think of all of these, you know, stomach turning incidents in the United States, you know, when they arise out of someone speeding 35 in a 25, or one could easily imagine going wrong way, the number of times, you know, we all want the maximum amount of freedom that we can pursue our happiness in this country and the minimum amount of government approach, uh, you know, confrontation consistent with us all being able to secure those blessings that we have in terms of freedom and moving around and enjoying our lives without being, you know, irritated by law enforcement. Um, you know, let's build it into the infrastructure. And the number of times when I was on city council with you that we had to have a speed bump in an area where the street was too wide in the first place. Right. Um, whereas you go to our, you know, the other neighborhood that both you and I love is Longfellow. And I just, every time I walk through, I'm probably going to walk with the dogs afterwards. We have narrow streets. So, you know, I've never seen a cop in the, the neighborhood. Um, it, it, and they always drive at a reasonable speed. It's just, it's like magic how, how this infrastructure works. No, that's, that's really should be the goal. I think that should be our expectation. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, we, with the one ways in particular, that's kind of a legacy from that period when um, the idea was let's move traffic as quickly as possible through our city, uh, regardless of the consequences. Now, you know, fortunately, unlike San Francisco, uh, Iowa City or Cedar Rapids, Iowa City does not have an interstate system running through Iowa City. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we do not have the impacts of a, a freeway. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a viaduct running over our town, as they, as you see in Cedar Rapids, that that has those have had just disastrous effects on those cities where those systems penetrate into the city itself. We do have our state highways, we do have our couplets, we have our four-lane streets, any multi-lane uh, configuration. Um, can be problematic in terms of having an, a negative impact on the surrounding area and on traffic. Speed. Well, and the other thing too, is it is complicated because for example, 
um, governor and Dodge are state highways. So that, that would have to be the state. Burlington technically is a state highway. So we would need to get permission from the state to do that. But I think what was frustrating for me, having served on council and now for you, is that Market and Jefferson are city streets totally within our control, um, totally subject to our jurisdiction and already on the agenda. So to tee it up a little bit more for our listeners, this was not a situation where uh, city council directed staff to change. Staff, for whatever reason, felt they wanted to just change it. And then the question is, is whether the recent decision that was made, whether city council would overrule a staff recommendation. Um, so I, I don't know if you could, could you identify, let's try to give the opposing viewpoint their due. So um, you and I are both advocates for one lane to two lane conversion, but let's articulate what, what were the proffered reasons not um, to convert from one way to two way. And let's try to give them their due in terms of um, that point of view. Well, what really what uh, kind of was uh, described by staff as the primary reason for deferring basically on this project was the cost of changing out the signalization, mm -hmm. uh, which had not been identified in the original estimate for the project. So it, it increased in cost. That was the primary reason. The staff wasn't saying they didn't support the concept, but they felt mm -hmm. the cost didn't warrant proceeding with it at this time. Um, but that sort of speaks to me about the, the, the downtown streetscape plan, which, uh, you know, again, what is the purpose of this plan? What, what are we spending our money on as, as far as these streetscape improvements? Mm -hmm. And where are we spending them? And mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to get into the details of that, but it certainly suggested to me that uh, those funds, given given the dis, you know the um, dysfunctionality of the one ways on Market and Jefferson, and the fact that we weren't these were not betterments, these were not aesthetic issues we were addressing with this increase in cost. This was basic infrastructure. Uh, the fact that they needed to be replaced was because they were installed in the 1970s. Anyway, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they needed to be replaced. In fact, arguably, uh, it was deferred maintenance that they hadn't been. Mm -hmm. So given all the benefits that, that I, I, you know, I think all of us can acknowledge are, are there, at least for, for, the, for most of us, again, there are people who feel... Um, that you know that benefit in terms of the traffic flow is something they want to preserve. You know, we we heard that from at least one council member. Mm -hmm. um, you know that that is something that we will be dealing with, and it sort of gets back to what I was saying earlier. There are different values, <coughs> excuse me, value sets that you see in Iowa City. Uh, that I've always hoped, and this you know, getting back to why would I want to serve on council? Mm -hmm. The idea was that. Uh, we should be able to find remedies and solutions to our challenges that you were describing. How do we grow? Mm -hmm. How do we address these issues related to the use of our public right-of-way? We should be able to find remedies to that where we don't have winners and losers. That was always my goal, that we should try to find ways in which uh, everyone gets something, but no one gets everything was, was really my mantra. It, almost to keep things in a state of balance. I, you know, if yeah. you think about, you know, there are certain cities and I won't name any particular cities, but they, they tend to exist a lot in the Midwest, candidly, where you get a hollowed out inner core uh, with beautiful pre-World War II neighborhoods sort of in a state of disrepair. 
and then a semi-functioning suburban edge that sort of works, sort of doesn't. Uh, typically, it's where sort of some of the professionals will go or this sort of thing. And it's sort of a community by Band-Aid. Now, Iowa City has been able to sort of delay some of those traditional urban pressures because we have the University of Iowa, which has kept a, a certain amount of vigor in our core neighborhoods, but it's still exceedingly difficult to, to maintain these treasures um, in part just because of the rental pressure um, to keep it livable for downtown. You know, the one of Nora's good friends lived on, I think, Governor, and I think they loved the historic neighborhood, but I think it was just, it was just too loud. So, so they just couldn't. And, you know, we understand there's not always going to be a ton of families down there, but I think that's always a key challenge. You know, in the intro, we did, uh, talked about Andres Duani. And one of the things I love about Andres Duani is, is that this new urbanism that he was really one of the leading founders of, he really pushed back and, and other new urbanists to this notion of the, the goal of urban development is to just get as far away as you can from the city. And he back, went back and said, no, these, these towns, if you look at one of his early videos that he did, I think like the late eighties, he basically compared, you know, uh, like, I think it was a suburban district with an old new England town. And he just marveled at the way these neighborhoods sort of evolved with corner grocery stores and mixed income where they didn't even plan and these neighborhood commercial districts. And the city of Iowa City has all of those treasures right there. They're already there. And it's just a question of letting them reemerge. And there's some exciting trends to keep these little treasures from, to, to, to keep them blossoming again. Um, you know, like for example, we have the Tomas Meat Market. We have, uh, you know, essentially on um, Summit Street, we have the, the, the bakery that we have there. Uh, so I think that's really the challenge and to make sure that we don't squash these little gems from reemerging uh, with parking requirements, all these sort of mistakes that we made from the 60s uh, to stop that, that, those sort of trends. So I don't know if you wanted to sort of comment a little bit on, you know, Andres Duwani and what he means to the city of Iowa City. We all know I also like Jeff Speck. Um, what, what, what's, and he wrote Walkable Cities. I don't know if you have any comments on that in terms of the city of Iowa City. Well, I do. I mean, you, one of the things you mentioned uh, with, with respect to develop, land development patterns is one of the core concerns that has uh, been identified with the low density auto oriented development form is the cost of it. Mm -hmm. uh, as well as the the environmental impacts of it, you mm -hmm. know, being auto so auto dependent. So if we're trying to reduce our carbon emissions, clearly uh, developing communities which are auto dependent isn't really the right way to go. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say first and foremost, uh, my my principal concern at this point is the financial burden that those that type of development puts on Iowa City. Mm -hmm. Another recent development, uh, and you were on council when I raised this concern, and that is we, our pavement management system up until recently had really not evaluated the cost of our roadway system to Iowa mm -hmm. City. And I had raised concerns that, from my observations, we weren't going to be able to maintain that system by simply relying on our five-year capital improvement program mm -hmm. to make sure that they were in good repair. Uh, eventually staff agreed that, yeah, we, we probably need to get a better understanding of what our, our maintenance needs are on our, mm -hmm. our, our roadway system. And, and that report was just recently released. 
And I thought it was very interesting in that what it, what it revealed, and this is kind of the, the importance of another important voice on this matter of um, you know, urban planning and, and the mm. economics of urban planning, strong towns, yeah, Chuck Rohn, I love Chuck. Hopefully Chuck will listen to this. I'll, yeah. I'll tag him on Facebook. <laughs> uh, you know, that the, the cost of, of our doing business, what, what the pavement management plan revealed was that the, the condition of our roads, particularly in the center of town, mm-hmm. are in really bad shape. Uh, partly because that, that's, this is the oldest part of town. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if we're to maintain just the status quo of our system, Mm -hmm. it's going to require millions of additional dollars per year to maintain just just the status quo, which, again, is a very uneven status quo. The the condition of the roadways in the center of town are many of them are in fair to poor condition. Uh, How are we going to pay for that? I mean, the only answer they had was the local option sales tax. Mm-hmm. Now there's a lot of competition for those that local option sales tax. You know we want to put it toward uh, better mental health uh, facilities. We want to put it toward perhaps daycare provisions, a whole a whole range of quality of life improvements that could be uh, paid for through our local option sales tax. We're now seeing we may need just to maintain our basic infrastructure. Yeah. So. That, that's where we're at. And what I did find interesting was where is the burden of that? Where has that been placed? It's been placed on the central neighborhoods. We have, in effect, uh, been arguably subsidizing that perimeter growth. Um, and why have we been subsidizing it? I think in part because, as you had mentioned, Iowa City was not hollowed out in the traditional sense uh, that we see in other Midwestern towns. But what we did see was a, a, a kind of a, a, an urban flight. Uh, families left the center. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't leave a vacuum. That vacuum was filled by the student population. Mm-hmm. But that student population is a transient population. Mm-hmm. So in terms of a voice with respect to quality of life, infrastructure, uh, you know, when you're, when you're a student, those aren't really on your radar in terms yeah. of... Concerns. So it was. It's a relatively easy uh, strategy to say, well, you know, the the center will the streets. We'll get to them sometime. Um, but you know, we're, we're always seeing. Well, we're going to extend American Legion. That's a nine million dollar uh, project. <laughs> yes. So, sorry. I guess we'll we'll wait on those center central streets and, until some later date. Uh, so so we we basically have seen a deferred maintenance approach toward the center of town, while the, the streets in better condition, uh, for now anyway, are further out. Now, the question is, of course, as that condition changes and those streets begin to need repair, you can see there's a compounding problem, uh, especially the more you build uh, build out. So the, the issue, as you were saying, is we need to take far more seriously staying within our existing footprint for all kinds of reasons Mm -hmm. Uh, because we have the infrastructure. We don't have to extend it. Uh, We, we reduce our carbon footprint. We can create more diversity. As you had mentioned, the suburbs tend to be segregated uh, by income. You know, there is very limited uh, integration 
that you can find in our in our uh, suburban subdivision. So, yes, as you said, if you if you can afford to live in the subdivisions, and when you get home, life can be good. But there are all kinds of um, consequences in terms of the general welfare mm -hmm. that flow from that that land development model. You know, absolutely, and I just think that that is really one of the challenges. And you had mentioned that, for example, nine million dollars, and and that really is. All council is is a series of competing choice about how you're going to exercise your vision and the values of the resources that you have. And it's really trying to recalibrate. I don't think we're saying that we're never going to have any new neighborhoods. I think you do need to have a certain number. And, you know, again, I'm not totally anti-burb. I mean, I think there are people that prefer those. I think it's good to have them as an option. Um, but you just, you, you cannot have an unbalanced teeter-totter and really what makes a place unique are these old historic neighborhoods and you can build them anew too, by the way. And I think we have made some progress that it's not necessarily either or in our South district. Uh, we, we did, we are incorporating some of those principles of the old historic neighborhoods to a newer neighborhood. So I'm really excited to see how that plays out over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, in our South District. And I think that illustrates that it's not necessarily an either or. Um, we can recover, and that's what the new urbanism is. They do a lot of new developments, like Andres Stuani is still hired to do new plans. And a lot of those newer neighborhoods do work. And in Save Iowa City, we also have the peninsula, which, which sort of demonstrates what that looks like. Although my pet peeve is I've always said of the peninsula, it's new urbanism without the very thing that makes something new urbanism, which is walkability of the rest of the community. It's sort of walkable when you're there, but it's sort of like a suburban new urbanism but that's sort of maybe a topic for another podcast. But those, um, those, are, those are good examples. You know, the South yeah. District and the Peninsula are, in effect, the, the, the idea is that you're creating a sense of place and a, and a more uh, compact, uh, not so much as you had said, uh, rich in terms of destinations because of mm. their, the Peninsula's location doesn't lend itself that way. But uh, the yield, and this gets back to the economics, the, the yeah. yield of the peninsula is considerably higher than, a, than in a traditional subdivision in terms of uh, taxable value. Because it has, so and, we, and, we and do, that's a lot, go ahead. We do have to pay, you know, the term that's used here is do, you have to do the math. Yeah. <clears throat> Growth in and of itself is not necessarily beneficial to a city. It's really important to understand how we grow what are, the, what are the values, the taxable values that they generate? How do they address equity? How, you know, there are whole, we, we are living now in a time when there's more than one bottom line that we need to be paying attention to. Exactly. That's, that, makes, that makes the development process somewhat more complex, but I think that's essentially our, our, our mission now should be to understand all of these factors as we grow, whether it's internally or through you know, further growth on the edge. And I wanted to give a shout out to Joe Minic, I think it's Joe Minicuzzi, right? Um, Minicuzzi or Minicuzzi? Yeah, Minicuzzi and Chuck Marone, who have really done this. You know, it is a question of choices, but I think a lot of times, you know, the narrative in terms of the exurban development is just growth and who doesn't want to grow? Like, that's good. But as Marone brings out in Minicuzzi, is that, yeah, there's a lot of things that grow. Your infrastructure responsibility grows. So, it, you know, if the trade is, is I get some temporary value on the front end, 
with a huge long-term liability that I may shift off to future generations, you can see how the individual developer would like that. You can see how the city councilor would like that because the tax revenues go up. But all you're really doing is, is you're kicking this huge infrastructure liability down the road. And it's more expensive to provide low-density infrastructure in terms of your sewer, your streets. The tax dollars just don't add up. And that's why cities find themselves... Um, in this difficult situation. So it's an interesting yeah. topic. And I think that it's, it's, a, it's a topic for which you need a background. So what I'd want to do is, um, I think we have about 10 minutes left here before we need to hand off the computer. Before, uh, before, we, before we move on, <clears throat> I yeah. did want to mention in terms of Joman and Cozy, yeah. and, and it sort of ties to uh, you know sources one can, can look at. Uh, yes. I just recently looked at um, on YouTube, uh, Joe Minicozzi made a presentation in St. Paul, Minnesota, okay. uh, where they did a, a geo-accounting of not only uh, St. Paul, but the county in which it's located. I think it's Ramsey County. Mm-hmm. It's really probably best if, if we were to do a kind of a geo-accounting to do it in for Johnson County as a whole, mm-hmm. because you know we have Coralville, we have North Liberty. I, I think they need to understand the importance of doing the math as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that's a reference. Um, you know, I would encourage anyone interested in this, this idea of geo-accounting. This is a very recent presentation he's made in a Midwestern town. Uh, I think it's relevant to our situation. Absolutely. And so I think it, it is good. You know, urban planning ultimately is an abstraction. You know, at the city level, it's done by the professionals. But, you know, the, the public is sort of the third estate. We have to sort of get what the issues are. Um, so it's important that we do know. And, and um, you know, I'll just start off with one book recommendation I love is Jeff Speck's Walkable City, I think is a short, compact book that will really give listeners an idea of, you know, what the issues are in a short, engaging and, and readable way. Uh, do you have any other recommendations for uh, urban planning books to sort of get people up to speed on what the issues are? Well, I... I'll just second what you said about Jeff and and uh, add that you know I think it, his book is probably the best one-stop uh, primer on you know the important considerations in in creating the walkable city, which is just shorthand really for uh, you know it isn't literally walkability in the sense of pedestrian mm-hmm. activity. It, it, it includes transit. It includes biking. Public I, health. Yeah, Iowa City could easily be um, a very bikeable community where you could reach most of your needs or meet most of your needs within a 10 to 15 minute bike ride. Uh, Walkability, as we were saying, walkable pedestrian sheds are more problematic in my view in Iowa City because of the, the character of the suburban subdivisions. But we could certainly improve life out there uh, but it's it's hard to achieve that kind of walkable threshold that would be preferred. So Jeff Speck, uh, not only Walkable City, but his follow-up to that, which is called Walkable City Rules, R-U-L-E-S, where he gets more into the implementation. And there I would just emphasize, because you and I have had conversations about this, there's a tendency with, with it, the concept of the walkable city to cherry pick what rules, so to speak, one uh, implements. In other words, mm. you know, we've talked a lot about the 10-foot lanes. Well, yeah. that's important, 
But if your block size is too large and, and the distance between intersections is too great, you know, you're probably going to find that you're going to have illegal speeding anyway, even if the lanes are 10 feet. So, you know, there are a whole range of issues which come into play. You simply cannot say, well, I'm going to do one out of, you know, I'm going to do 50% of the rules. You really have to do as many of them as you can in order to achieve the walkable city. Uh, the other suggestions I would have are some of the websites that I've found very interesting. Uh, Strong Towns, we've mentioned. Um, the Congress of the New Urbanism, you know, you've talked about Andres Duani. Uh, they have a lot of content on their website. And then just a, kind of a curveball uh, website is called Granola Shotgun. Ooh, that sounds like something I would like. <laughs> I, think you, I think you will enjoy Granola Shotgun. Oh, that, wow, that sounds pretty badass, John, I got to say. Yeah, I'm, he, I'm, he I'm checking that out. Very, he has got a really interesting take on um, issues related to quality of life, what's happening with the economy, um, you know, not only in the short term, but sort of long term cycles. He's very high on the Midwest, you know, in the sense that we do have some great urbanism in the Midwest. It's sort of been mothballed, um, but it's there. Uh, I love the, the I feel I would the state of Iowa's small towns has some of the best urbanism does not mean a big city. Washington, you know, Iowa, you can still get commercial buildings downtown. Like hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, I, I, I mean, in a city of Iowa City, they'd cost two point five million, and in New York, it'd be ten million. I mean, I mean, it's insanely undervalued in my view. So, yeah, Californians, the small, I, maybe I shouldn't share this secret with everyone, but yeah, it's crazy. The small towns of Iowa, uh, now, granted, some of them are are, you know, are contracting, but you know, mm -hmm. um, Decorah, your hometown, is a great small town mm -hmm. with a high level of urbanism and walkability. Mm -hmm. um, Mount Vernon, you know, another satellite to Iowa City is a charming walkable town. It, you know, mm -hmm. you don't have the options you have in Iowa City, uh, but you can pretty much get everything you want within a, within a bike ride or a walk. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it, urbanism does not necessarily translate to large cities. It can be easily mm -hmm. applied to smaller places. Uh, so those are anyway, some examples of websites that I think um, are very stimulating. Uh, draw really good. The other thing I would emphasize, they draw very good followers, you know, people who are contributing content in their comments. It's very, you know, very good stuff coming out of there, not just on their end, but on the people who comment on the, on the pieces that are listed. Well, so I thank you so much, John, for, for, for getting on this show. I think it's going to be a really engaging, um, you know, podcast. And we understand for your colleagues that made the decision they did, you know, every argument has two sides. Uh, they're all uh, called upon to exercise their conscience. The only thing I would say is, is just sort of in conclusion, we, we haven't talked a lot about Jane Jacobs, and so we can maybe do a separate one sometimes on, on Jane Jacobs. But, uh, you know, she was a layperson who basically started her book, Death and Life of American Cities, with this book is an attack on the profession of urban planning. And I'm like, that's chutzpah. And she has, for the most part, been borne out uh, that she took on the great expert of urban planning, Robert Moses, and basically won the argument, although there are a few neo-Robert Mosians out there that said, well, maybe, you know, you needed someone to break a few eggs to, to get this omelet of New York in shape. Um, but 
but, but for the most part, she was. And the public is an extremely important part of that process. Right. And then a lot of times the public is right in terms of what their observation is on the street. And so Death and Life is one that we'll highlight in our show notes too um, for rockneycole.com. So there's going to be a lot of ongoing issues. Um, and so I really thank you for your time. Is there, um, oh, I also wanted to say like, you know, I sort of go through this, this midlife transformation. And so I'll asking about self-care. What does John Thomas do for self-care to, to keep well, him going it, it, during those stressful moments? It's, it's interesting, you know, at this, at this time where it, feel, it feels to me in my life, and I will be turning 70 in May. You look great, by the way, John. You look great. You could be, you could I, be I 55. I have a hard, I, I have to say I'm having a little bit of a hard time uh, getting around the fact that I will be turning 70. Um, so it's, it's causing me, you know, to go through some shifts in my thinking. Uh, but I would say in terms of, you know, self-health care, uh, I'm trying to focus in a way that I haven't in some time on my immediate surroundings. So it's mm-hmm. sort of the, 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 the landscape architect in me is looking really at my own little plot of land here um, in a way that I haven't in, in some time. Uh, I think it's very important to, to sort of get your own house in, in, in place and order. Yes. Uh, certainly one could expand out, you know, to the surrounding neighborhood. And I, I will always have that kind of, my identity is deeply tied into my immediate surroundings beyond my own little plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I certainly uh, am paying much more attention now to my immediate surroundings, meaning my own property and making sure it's everything I, it can possibly be. John, I just absolutely love that. And that's a great way to close. Um, you know, I've been loving the Stoics. And one of the things they focus on Epictetus is focus on what you can control. And don't get too worried about what you can't. Now, with your, even you as a city councilor, you only have partial control, you can vote your conscience, and that's it. But in terms of your immediate surroundings, your health, um, your home, your relationships, you have an enormous amount of control. And that's been a revelation that I've had as well, is focus on your immediate present surroundings, and you can make a huge impact. So thank you so much. We're going to include all the notes uh, from this particular podcast at rockneycole.com. Um, and I hope we can have some ongoing conversations. But this, I think this has been one of my best ones, John. Oh. So uh, Thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. And uh, thanks for asking me to join you in a conversation. All right. Well, Sarah's going to take over the computer now, huh? Okay. All right. Sounds good. Take care, John. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for an end of this episode of the Rockney Cast. For all the book recommendations that we discussed, check out rockneycole.com at the show notes, and you can uh, hopefully make a purchase. And each purchase that you make through the rockneycole.com website does go to me, Rockney Cole, in support of the Rockney Cast. So hopefully you'll get an opportunity to make some of those purchases and and continue to participate in this sort of in this sort of idea community that we are um, developing here. Uh, John is such a good vibe guy and I have so much gratitude that he was able to help out. So stay tuned for our next episode. For the next episode, we're going to be interviewing a famous opera singer, Mary Elizabeth Williams, and we talk about life, her journey in opera. We even talk about a really exciting adventure story involving her father in World War II in, in France. Mary is a true Renaissance woman. You guys are going to absolutely love that episode. So with infinite gratitude for every single one of you who have taken the time to tune in. And if you've made it this star far, send me an email at rockneycole at 
gmail.com or rockneycast at gmail.com and I would love to hear from you. So stay tuned for the next episode of the Rockneycast. Cast.